This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about structured settlements from Ringler Associates, the first name in structured settlements, helping injured people and their families since 1975. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by Allstate, American General, The Hartford, John Hancock, Liberty Mutual, MetLife, Mutual of Omaha, New York Life, Pacific Life, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Ringler Radio. I'm glad you could join us. I'm Larry Cohen, head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations. And today we're going to uh, have a very interesting discussion about maritime law. You know, you don't hear much about maritime law until a huge disaster like the uh, Costa Concordia cruise ship that many of you uh, saw ran aground off the coast of Italy earlier this year. That's that's an example of, uh, it's quite a distinct example of a maritime incident. But the fact is, maritime accidents happen frequently and people are often left severely injured. So today on Ringler Radio, we're taking a look at maritime law and how injured parties can have a financially secure future through structured settlements. Uh, and joining me today for that discussion is my Ringler colleague and a friend down in New Orleans, Keith Christie. Keith has 30 years of insurance and structured settlement experience. He's been down in that uh, running our New Orleans operation in that uh, southern Louisiana area. And uh, Keith, I hope you're enjoying the uh, very balmy weather down there in uh, Louisiana this time of year. I certainly am, and I appreciate you inviting me back to the show. All right. Well, I know the weather's not that balmy, but... Uh, I hope you're you're suffering through it uh, well. Our special guest today is uh, very knowledgeable when it comes to maritime law. He's uh, attorney Charles Lech, a partner at Deutsch, Kerrigan & Stiles, also in New Orleans. As a civil litigator with, with over 40 years of experience, uh, Charlie has represented corporations and insurance companies in a wide variety of cases arising out of maritime, personal injury, mass tort and product liability and uh, and many other uh, facets of the law. Uh, that's quite an extensive resume, Charlie. Welcome to Ringler Radio. Larry, well, very glad to be here. Thanks very much for having me on. Well, that's great. Uh, you know, Charles, the, uh, the Jones Act is essentially the defining legislation for maritime law. A lot of us have heard the term Jones Act. Tell us more about the act and how does it affect maritime law? Well, Larry, we've got uh, lots to discuss, but just briefly, the Jones Act uh, was passed in 1920. The object was to protect people who got injured while working on ships. And you wouldn't think that a law dealing with maritime workers would have anything to do with railroad workers, but mm -hmm. it does. The Jones Act simply adopts an earlier law called the Federal Employers Liability Act, or FELA, mm -hmm. which was passed in 1908 and applied to railroad workers. The object of both laws was to make it easier for employees in those two industries to get a recovery if they were injured on the job. Mm -hmm. is, it, is it somewhat akin, would you say, to uh, what workers' comp does in the, in the general employment arena? There are uh, great distinctions between uh, the, the Jones Act and workers' comp. Workers' comp... Uh, 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 provides a definite uh, recovery, mm -hmm. uh, whereas the Jones Act per permits the injured person uh, to sue the employer in negligence. So you've got to prove a negligence case under the Jones Act. Terrific. So you're saying, Charlie, that the um, 
The Jones Act is a is not a statutory requirement, and it's run by the federal government. Is that correct? Well, the the Jones Act is a federal statute which applies to members of the crew of vessels, mm-hmm. and it permits uh, members of the crew of vessels to have a recovery in tort uh, against their employer, as opposed to workers' compensation. Uh, which is a no-fault system. You get workers' comp uh, regardless of who's at fault or what caused the injury. And uh, the object, of course, is that it's uh, it's a trade-off or a compromise. Uh, the injured person uh, gives up the possibility of getting a huge recovery in tort uh, where you can recover damages, but you may have a difficult case to prove Mm-hmm. Uh, in return for getting a sure recovery under workers' compensation, uh, which uh, you get regardless of what caused or who caused the accident. How was it before the Jones Act with regard to employer-employee relationships? Uh, it, it's a good idea to get, get some background here. If you, if you go back to 1900 and think about the legal recovery rights that people had when they got hurt on the job, uh, there were really only two potential targets, uh, you might say, for your claim. Uh, one was your own employer, and then, of course, there were third parties, that is, persons other than you and your employer. Uh, and you had the right to sue both your employer uh, or third parties if you got injured. But in those days, there was no workers' compensation, and so to recover anything for your on-the-job injury, you had to sue your employer or a third party uh, or both in tort. Of course, that meant you had to prove that the employer or the third party caused your injury, that they were negligent, uh, and that you incurred damages. Mm-hmm. And your damages could include past and future lost wages, medical expenses, pain, suffering, mental anguish, etc. So in a tort claim, you had the potential for a large recovery. But in those days, it was very difficult to prosecute that kind of tort claim if you were injured on the job for primarily three major uh, reasons. Mm-hmm. First, there was what was called the fellow-servant rule, and that rule basically said that if you were injured by the fault of a co-worker, the co-worker might be liable, but the employer was not. And of course, if you got injured on the job, typically you were you would be injured by the negligence of a co-worker. So that served to knock out a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Secondly, there was the contributory negligence rule, which said that if you were even the slightest bit uh, responsible for your own uh, injury, even as much as 1%, uh, you couldn't recover. And then thirdly, there was the doctrine of assumption of the risk. And your employer could say, well, you assume the risk of your employment, and and therefore you can't get a recovery. And, of course, the fourth problem was that if you sued your employer, you're likely to to lose your job. (laughs) You lose your job, exactly. Exactly. So so, so in those days, it was very, very tough for anybody to make a recovery uh, against your employer. And it was even, in some ways, tougher for maritime employees, people who worked on ships. Uh, You had basically four things that you could recover from your employer, and they were typically known as transportation, wages, maintenance, and cure. Mm -hmm. And I can describe those things to you. The bottom bottom line is it was a a very minimal recovery. Before you you get into that, Let's go back to the issue of the fellow servant rule, contributory negligence, assumption of risk. How did the Jones Act uh, 
replace or, or, or alter those pretty standard rules of negligence and all that? How, how did the Jones Act affect the, the, ones, the, the items you just mentioned? Well, we go back to the uh, FELA, mm-hmm. which permitted recovery in, in tort by railroad workers. And the FELA knocked out uh, basically all three of those uh, bars to recovery, it knocked out the fellow-servant rule, knocked out the contributory negligence rule, and replaced it with a comparative fault system. Okay. And it knocked out the assumption of the risk doctrine. Uh, all of that was accomplished by the FELA that was passed in 1908, and then in 1920, when the Jones Act was passed, it simply made the FELA applicable to uh, seamen, that is, workers who worked on ships. Well, let's talk about the term seaman. Uh, what, who is considered a seaman uh, out there? Well, it, it, I'm sure that's a term of, uh, of some substance, uh, something to really consider well, as to who is or who is not a seaman. Tell me about that. Uh, that is indeed a very big issue in Jones Act litigation. Uh, the Jones Act, uh, by its own terms, applies to seamen, but it does not define the term. Hmm. Um, in 1920, things were a lot simpler, of course, and uh, seamen were just workers who went to sea on ships. Uh, so, you know, in, in the case of a blue water seafarer, uh, you would have an individual who would sign an employment contract, typically known as shipping articles, and he would work aboard on, uh, uh, on board a vessel for weeks or months, uh, sailing long distances over the oceans. Mm-hmm. It was pretty clear that he was a Jones Act seaman. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in other cases, it was not so clear. And the, the, the next important development was that in 1927, Congress passed the Longshore and Harbor Workers' Compensation Act, or the Longshore Act. And the Longshore Act was designed to provide a workers' comp scheme for maritime workers, primarily people who worked to load or unload vessels or to build or repair vessels. And a federal act was necessary in that case because injuries frequently occurred on vessels over water where state law did not apply. The Longshore Act was designed to cover land-based workers who got injured on vessels, but who were not members of the crew of vessels. Gotcha. And so the Longshore Act specifically excludes, quote, a master or member of the crew of any vessel, and therefore the Longshoremen's Act and the Jones Act are mutually exclusive. So in essence, the... uh the longshoremen definitions do not include what we would call seamen from the standpoint of the Jones Act. Uh, is that right? That's, that's correct. They, they have been held to be mutually uh, exclusive. So if you are a Jones Act seaman, then you are not a longshoreman and vice versa. Vice versa. Uh, but the, the, whole, the whole business of seaman status uh, generates a tremendous amount of, of uh, litigation in Jones Act cases. Uh, you'd think it would be uh, easy to determine who is uh, a member of the crew of a vessel and who's not, mm-hmm. uh, but it turns out to be quite tricky in a number of cases. I can give okay. you some examples, well, but you may wish to go on. Yeah. Go ahead, Keith. As far as the years have gone since 1927, Charlie, um, has much changed between the aspect of the Jones Act? Uh, uh, there, there have been some changes, uh, but... Uh, actually, not all that much. Um, there are, of course, different aspects of the Jones Act. You've got the whole issue of seaman status. That is, who is a seaman? 
You've got the whole business of vessel status. What is a vessel? Um, and you've got the whole business of uh, the causation of the injured person's injury. There have been tremendous amounts of litigation on all of those issues down through the years, and uh, the, the, the the law tends to become uh, more refined and more definite as you go along, but there are still some uh, areas where the law is not definite. Yeah. Charlie, what, what, let me let me go back to this concept of seamen and who's not a seaman for the purposes of the Jones Act. How would you define passengers or other uh, folks on a ship uh, that that maybe aren't necessarily working on the ship but are injured? Are they covered under Jones Act, or is that a, is that more of a tort? Let's say a passenger on on a vessel. Yeah, passengers and guests and transient workers. Uh, who are not assigned to work on a vessel on, on a substantial basis are not covered by the Jones Act. Jones Act is intended to apply to members of the crew of vessels or those who are uh, assigned to work a substantial part of their uh, working life on, on a vessel. That's interesting. In general, the, the rule now is to be a Jones Act seaman, you've got to have a substantial connection to a vessel and you must contribute to the function of the vessel or to the accomplishment of its mission. Those are sort of the key words. Mm -hmm. And under the Chandra's case, a general rule of thumb is that you must spend at least 30% of your time working on board a vessel in order to have Jones Act status. Otherwise, you're a transient worker, in essence. That's right. Okay. And then as a transient worker, you would have rights under the general maritime law to sue anyone in negligence. Uh, who might cause an injury to gotcha. you on board. Uh, but uh, if, if you're just a transient worker now, if you are a, uh, uh, if you're a longshoreman or a shipbuilder, then in that case you would come, as to your employer, you would come under the uh, Longshoreman's Act. Right. And just to clarify again, uh, if you are a transient worker and you're injured on, on, on the ship or you're a passenger on the ship and you file under general maritime tort-type law, then those elements such as assumption of risk or contributory negligence and uh, some of those other elements that the, the Jones Act kind of did away with, they, would, they potentially would apply for those other folks, the transient workers. Is that right? No. Um, uh, as to contributory negligence, negligence, we now have under the general maritime law the same comparative uh, fault uh, scheme. Mm -hmm. So contributory negligence would be uh, no longer applicable. Okay, so that would be comparative. What about the assumption of risk? Uh, assumption of, of risk, uh, you can try that, uh, but uh, that, that's uh, so, somewhat of a, of a difficult uh, defense to urge uh, mm -hmm. these days. Mm -hmm. And of course, the fellow servant rule no longer is applicable either. Right, right. So, so the, uh, the practical effect of the difference between being a seaman under the Jones Act and being, let's say, a transient worker under under maritime law, in terms of the defenses you could be that could be raised, are not that different, are they? I mean, you, you, the the comparative negligence is still there to, to be applied, and and essentially this uh, assumption of risk, although eliminated from Jones Act, is, is is very difficult to 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 deal with on the other side. So. I'm trying to get to the differences practically between filing a Jones Act claim as a seaman and filing a, a maritime tort action as a transient worker, for example. Well, let's look at the actions that a, that a Jones Act seaman would have. Mm -hmm. And you've got to really think of three classes of potential uh, defendants in his claim. First of all, he has a claim against his employer. Mm -hmm. 
and that would be for negligence under the Jones Act. Mm-hmm. But then under the general maritime law against his employer, he also has a claim for transportation, wages, maintenance, and cure. Mm-hmm. So that would be against the employer. Now, he also has a claim against the vessel owner, and the vessel owner may or may not be his employer. Right. That's an important thing to keep in mind. Uh, against the vessel owner, if he is a seaman, he has a right of action for unseaworthiness under the general maritime law. Mm-hmm. And so in that case, uh, and that's an absolute duty, if you if he can show that there was some defect in the ship right. that caused his accident, uh, then he can recover under the general maritime law. And then, of course, under the general maritime law, he has a claim in negligence against any third parties that might be involved. So if you are a seaman, you have those three classes of potential recoveries uh, and particularly against the employer under the Jones Act, you've got both negligence and maintenance and cure uh, to uh, uh, possibly recover. So uh, you, you've got an array of, of potential avenues of recovery. Well, that was a terrific explanation, Charlie. I think our audience is going to be very, uh, very much informed now as to some of those nuances of difference. And uh, I know a lot of a lot of folks out there aren't as familiar with the maritime uh, and law and the Jones Act. So this is a, a real good primer for them. Uh, thank you for, for, for explaining it that way. Keith? Charlie, you were mentioning um, the fact of a vessel. What constitutes a vessel on a Jones Act claim? Well, uh, that's a very good question. And uh, again, the the two uh, major issues that often pop up in uh, Jones Act cases are seaman status and then vessel status. So this whole business of what is a vessel uh, is a very big thing that that gets litigated. You would think that it would be uh, easy to figure out what a vessel is, but for example, uh, if you've got a mobile drilling barge, typically called a jack-up rig, Mm -hmm. and that would be a large floating barge with drilling equipment on it. It's floated into location, and then the legs are extended down to the seafloor. The barge is raised above the water into a stationary position, but it's resting on the seafloor. Is that a vessel? Uh, Or you've (laughs) got uh, a barge or some other floating structure that's being used uh, as a dock or a work platform. Is that a vessel? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what about a ship that's in dry dock? Is that a vessel? So you can see that uh, uh, that there are uh, strange situations that occur out there where the whole issue uh, of vessel status is very important, and there's a tremendous amount of litigation on that subject. Well, for our, for our listeners, to, to clarify again, does the Jones Act, for a Jones Act claim to, to prevail and, and to be filed, does the injury have to occur, quote-unquote, on a vessel? It does not. Mm-hmm. Uh, to bring a Jones Act claim, and don't forget that a Jones Act claim is against the employer, mm-hmm. uh, the Jones Act uh, plaintiff must prove basically five things. First, he must establish seaman status, that is, that he is a seaman. Uh, assigned to a uh, a vessel. Secondly, he's got to establish vessel status, that the thing he was assigned to was indeed a vessel. Mm -hmm. Thirdly, he's got to establish employment status, that is, that he was employed Mm -hmm. by his employer to work on that vessel. 
Fourth, he's got to establish that he was injured in the course of his employment. And then finally, uh, he's got to establish, uh, of course, negligence on the part of his employer. And that can include, and typically does include, negligence on the part of co-employees. So uh, the answer to the question is no, uh, the injury does not have to be on a vessel. In fact, you could have a strange situation where a Jones Act employee is injured in an automobile accident uh, and still uh, has a Jones Act claim. Mm-hmm. If he is assigned, for example, with a co-employee uh, to get in a car and drive somewhere to get some provisions for the ship, right? Uh, and the other guy who's driving gets in an accident, uh, the man is injured as a result of the, um, the negligence of the driver, who is a co-employee, well, then he's got a Jones Act claim, uh, even though his accident did not occur on a ship. That's a very interesting discussion and explanation. And uh, again, that's uh, the, the, these elements and these these explanations are very informative. Uh, Charlie, what about this? We hear about this issue called the slightest causation standard for employer negligence. What tell us about what that how that affects the, a, a claim? Slightest causation well, standard. Yeah, the uh, the FELA provides that the injured employee can bring an action if his injury was caused, quote, in whole or in part by the negligence of the employer. And the Jones Act was generally, uh, has generally been in, uh, interpreted to be remedial legislation that's intended to protect seamen because of the harsh and, and the dangerous conditions under which they work. Mm-hmm. So if you combine the protective purpose of the Jones Act with the language in whole or in part, uh, generally courts have construed the words in part to mean even the slightest part. Uh, even the slightest negligence on the part of the employer could result in a recovery under the Jones Act. However, let's don't forget, first of all, that the fault of the injured plaintiff is also assessed. On, so a, com- on a comparative pl- basis. That's right. On a comparative basis, if the plaintiff was 90% at fault for his own injury and the employer was 10% at fault, then the man's recovery would be reduced by 90%. But also, we have in the Fifth Circuit, we have uh, a case entitled uh, Gotro versus Scurlock Marine, in which in the Fifth Circuit, uh, the uh, standard of care applicable to the employer is simply the the typical reasonable man uh, standard. In fact, that standard is applicable both to the employer and to the employee. So in the Fifth Circuit, the so-called slightest causation rule uh, has been adjusted uh, and and replaced by uh, the rule of of, uh, just the typical standard of care in a negligent case. So, Charlie, does that rule apply also in general maritime law? Yes, and under the general maritime law, yes. So strict liability is is basically one of the one of the uh, caveats to the law regarding. Well, now, an well, now you have you have a strict liability standard under a under an, an unseaworthiness claim, but in a negligence claim, the reasonable care standard would apply. Okay. Okay, so, and and again, the issue of. Uh, the case you mentioned, the Gautreaux case, that that essentially was kind of limiting the Jones Act application as to uh, in whole or in part, in essence. But did did it affect the general maritime law as well? 
No, no. It, it, it's it's a Jones Act. Uh, it's a Jones Act case. But again, under the uh, general maritime law, if you're prosecuting a negligence claim, uh, now this would not be against the employer because you'd be under the Jones Act right. if you were going against the employer. But if you're prosecuting a negligence claim under the general maritime law, then the reasonable man standard would apply. But if you're pursuing an unseaworthiness claim, then it's that's in essence a strict liability claim. If you can prove a defect in the vessel that caused your injury, then you have liability. Typically against the ship owner or the vessel owner. That's right. Unseaworthiness claim goes against the vessel owner. Terrific. Okay, well, let's take a quick break right now and uh, be back in a minute with more on maritime law and the Jones Act with our special guest, Charlie Lesh, and my co-host, Keith Christie. We'll be right back. You can listen to all the Ringler Radio shows. Just go to RinglerAssociates.com or LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on Ringler Radio and choose from almost 200 topics. Ringler Radio is celebrating its seventh year right here on Legal Talk Network. Produced by broadcast professionals and hosted by Larry Cohen. When it's your interest at stake in a lawsuit settlement, you want only the best financial plan. You can count on Ringler Associates to structure a customized plan that meets the needs of you and your family for the future. Visit RinglerAssociates.com to learn more. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Think you might like to have us create your own podcast on LegalTalkNetwork.com? Go to the website and send us an email. Or just give us a call at 781-551-9960. It's the best move you'll make in legal marketing. You never have enough friends or followers, right? Check out Legal Talk Network on Facebook and Twitter. LinkedIn, too. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. Glad you could join us. We've been talking about maritime law and the Jones Act, and we've been doing that with a a terrific expert in New Orleans, attorney Charlie Letch, and uh, my co-host, Keith Christie, and let's get back to our conversation. Keith, uh, I know you've been involved in quite a few of these cases, and in many of them, this concept of maintenance and cure arises. Why don't you uh, talk about that with uh, Charlie? Charlie, let me ask you something. As far as maintenance and cure is concerned, I know that even though it's a federal statutory issue, what does what do most employers do regarding um, an injured employee regarding their maintenance and cure? Well, uh, maintenance and cure is one of the four things, uh, two of the four things available under the general maritime law. Uh, Maintenance and cure are not provided under the Jones Act, but uh, the general maritime law provides for what's referred to as transportation, wages, maintenance, and cure. And basically, transportation means that you're entitled to the cost of getting transported back to the port where you got on the ship. If you're injured and have to get off the ship at some other port, uh, wages means that you're entitled to collect the rest of your wages to the end of the intended voyage, 
uh, if you get injured uh, during the voyage. But then, and those two typically don't mean too much anymore. But maintenance and cure can be big ones. Maintenance uh, under the general maritime law uh, is a stipend which is basically intended to replace the, quote, room and board, close quote, uh, that an injured seaman gets while he's on the ship, uh, while he's recovering on land. And uh, it's, it's still a, a minimal amount. It's, it, uh, it's not very much, but if you have a case that, uh, that lingers for, for a number of years, the daily uh, amount due for maintenance and cure can mount up to a significant amount. What's really particularly important in maintenance cases uh, is an arbitrary or capricious refusal on the part of the employer to pay maintenance. And if the employer refuses to pay, then punitive damages can be awarded uh, and as, as well as regular damages, and that can uh, amount to a significant uh, recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, cure is basically a payment of medical expenses. And as far as the punitive aspect, has that always been the case, or is that a recent issue? Uh, there, there's always been damages for uh, an arbitrary and, and, and uh, capricious refusal on the part of the employer to uh, to pay uh, maintenance or cure. Interesting. And as far as as far as the injury of the individual, when are you allowed to stop paying maintenance and cure? Maintenance and cure are stopped at the point of maximum recovery, and uh, that's of course a, a point of contention in some cases. That's a medical uh, opinion, I would you, assume. That's a medical opinion by both both sides. Provide a doctor, and one says he's he's finished. The other one says he's still he's still treating. Right? Yes, that's right. Uh, it's a medical opinion as to whether maximum cure has been reached. Uh, and of course, the terrible part about that is that if a person is is totally disabled, uh, their maintenance and cure may be cut off at the point of maximum cure, even though they remain disabled. Uh, so that, that's one of the major distinctions between maintenance and cure on the one hand and workers' comp um, on the other hand. So in other words, he could, he could have reached a maximum treatment result. He, he can't do anything more for the individual, but he still could be lying in a bed for the rest of his life. That's correct, insofar as maintenance and cure yeah, recovery is exactly. concerned. That, that's certainly a tough, uh, tough, tough thing to handle. Well, okay. let, me, let me ask you this, uh, Charlie. You've... Uh, You've handled a lot of these cases, and uh, obviously you've seen uh, a lot of settlements in these matters. What role have the structured settlement has the structured settlement played in the cases you've handled, and, and how, do you, how do you sense that structured settlements aid in the settlement of these types of cases? Larry, uh, structured settlements, in my view, are extremely important uh, in serious Jones Act cases, as they are in any serious uh, injury case. Uh, first of all, uh, of course, a structured settlement is a guaranteed source of future income, uh, typically funded by a major life insurance company. It's about as safe a source of income as you can get, and that's particularly important where the injured person who will benefit from the structured settlement is partially or wholly disabled. The structured settlement, of course, can replace his lost future income stream. So mm-hmm. that's that's number one. Second important factor is that the structured settlement benefit is tax-free. And because it's tax-free, in essence, you get an effective rate of return on the amount of the award 
that's very difficult to match in any other kind of investment. In other words, if you're taking that lump sum and put it in the stock market or some other type of investment, it's very difficult to match the security and the safety of the structured payout because you're not subject to the fluctuations in the stock market or Wall Street scandals, uh, financial crises, and that sort of thing. Exactly. Um, thirdly, um, and, and to me, one of the important things about the structured settlement is that it can be flexible. And that is, uh, you may have ongoing medical expenses that should be covered by regularly month, uh, regular monthly payments. Uh, you may have large anticipated future medical expenses, such as for surgery that has to be performed at some point in the future. Uh, and, of course, a structured settlement can be set up to uh, to pay for that. A structured settlement can be used uh, almost like a built-in prepaid savings account that will make money uh, available in the future for other things. For example, college tuition for uh, the ind individual if he's young and hasn't been to college yet, or for children uh, of the injured uh, person, uh, that kind of thing. Exactly. Anyway, the, the important thing is that the structured settlement can be tailored to the individual needs uh, of the uh, recipient. And then, and then finally, uh, in my view, uh, one of the most important things about structured settlements uh, are that they have sort of a built-in uh, discipline. Uh, there are many people who receive a large lump sum in a personal injury case, but they have little knowledge about how to manage a large sum of money. And they're simply overwhelmed by the temptation to uh, to spend that money immediately on new cars, fancy houses, big vacations, or whatever. I think you just described uh, Keith Christie, as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, for folks like that, I, I think for, for their their future benefit, and particularly in a case of a permanent dis, uh, disability, either partial or whole. Uh, structured settlements are uh, extraordinarily uh, beneficial. Well, Charlie, thank you for that that uh, terrific endorsement of the of the product and and and, and its usefulness and it, to a lot of the clients I'm sure that you're involved with. And I think the one the one element there that that rings home. I think Keith and I deal with this all the time uh, for all of the you know the more financial oriented benefits of structures that you mentioned, tax free and 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 the like. I think the one you mentioned last is is perhaps the the best element of all, and that is to prevent the client from dissipating those those hard hard earned funds that they've won in this settlement. Before you know it, they turn around and the money is not there. So this is a very very. I think you're absolutely right. It's a discipline that uh, most most people look back and say thank thank goodness that that it's there. I'm still getting those checks in the mail. Exactly. Well, that's terrific. Well, I I want to thank you, Charlie, for uh, for giving us this in, informative. Uh, discussion on the Jones Act. I, I think we're going to look back on this and, and listen to it carefully and, and, and have learned an awful lot from this discussion. If someone wanted to get in touch with you, Charlie, how would they do that? Uh, Deutsch, Kerrigan, and Stiles in New Orleans is my law firm. Uh, our phone number here is 504-581-5141. And my email is clesh. So that's C-L-E-C-H-E at dkslaw.com. Terrific, terrific. And Keith, uh, if someone wanted to get you, how would they do that? Well, you can reach me via my um, email address. It's kchristie at ringlerassociates.com mm -hmm. or area code 
616-616-6263. Terrific, and thank you for that. And uh, if any of you are, our listeners want to reach any Ringler Associate, you can do it on the Ringler website, ringlerassociates.com, and of course listen to this show and many others on ringlerassociates.com or legaltalknetwork.com. Uh, where there are all the uh, Ringler radio shows are there to learn an awful lot about a lot of topics like we did today on the Jones Act and Maritime Law from Charlie Lesh. So uh, with that, Charlie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you. And thank Keith, you all very much for the opportunity to be with you. And Keith, thanks for being a great co-host. And uh, for the rest of you out there, go have a great day. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. Its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio, celebrating its seventh year on Legal Talk Network with over a million listeners. Ringler Associates, the first name in structured settlements. Visit ringlerassociates.com today. Today.